And to our text for our message this morning, I'm going to read verses 7 to verse 12 of James chapter 4, but we're focused specifically on verses 11 and 12. So here again, the Word of God, let us give our attention to its reading. James 4 verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? And as the grass withers and the flower fades, God's word alone endures forever. And may we hear it. You know, when uh, some of you weren't here for the first message, but when I began this message in the letter of James, I intimated that uh, one of the difficulties many have when they view this, many Christians in particular, when they view the letter of James, is that they see it as one of the more practical letters and practical portions of the New Testament. And I caution you again, in particular, as we're coming to this text, that we be careful that we are able to see that James, this letter, is more than just practical advice on Christian living. Especially when it comes to a verse like verse 11, and you have that imperative set before you, do not speak evil of one another. I know as Christians, we are more tended to those passages of Scripture that teach us and tell us what we are to do or what we are not to do. We find a lot of comfort when when we're trying to understand and search out what it means to be a Christian and to live for the glory of Christ in this world, in this life. We find, do we not, more comfort in those passages that are very direct to say, you should do this, you shall not do this. We like them because for us it's practical. We can see it working in our lives or we can be striving for something that we believe is much more tangible. But do you know what has often happened when we look to that practicality that's laid bare before us? And I guess I want to backstep a bit to say I am not in any way denying the need for commandments and imperatives. But the problem is when we rely upon those to give evidence of our life of obedience, when we look to those to direct us in the Christian faith, and it happens all the time, we become more dependent on moralism than we do on Christ Himself. We begin to look more at our life and the changes that we think we are making and find comfort in them and less and less in the Lord Jesus. 
Moralism is a rampant problem in Christianity. It's a rampant problem in most world religions because it reduces religion to a system of do's and don'ts and often misses the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ and the work that He has accomplished. We miss who we are in Christ and miss the fact that these imperatives that meet us, the do's and the do-nots that meet us, they flow from who we are in Christ. They do not make us who we are in Christ. Do you understand the distinction? That's something very much to be guarded in. When we come to James' letter, that's why I say it's, don't look at it as a practical letter. Look at it as something that comes and guides our life in Christ more and more. We, we ought to be ones who wonder at the saving grace that has met us. And understand that we, even with all of these do's and don'ts, we we still have much more to do and much more not to do in our lives than simply what one imperative or a single commandment bears upon our life. We're never going to find the end of perfection in this life. We're always pursuing holiness and righteousness in this life. And we must never forget that. But as much as moralism is a problem in Christianity, there is another problem. And I believe this is is something that we want to grab hold of when we look at these two verses. There is another problem that I think is even more dangerous in Christianity. And I see a rise of it even in our day. And there is some overflow of what's happening in the world around us. And that is this problem. It is the anarchy of antinomianism. And antinomianism is one of those theological words that means to live without the law. (laughs) To set aside the laws that rule and govern our life so that we can go and do as we please. And does that not exist within Christianity? It exists within the world. We're seeing it in North America and we're seeing it in other places. That anarchy of antinomianism. You have no right to tell me what I can and cannot do. And when it comes into Christianity, what happens? We read the law. Now how many of you, how many of you has it been a long time since you heard the law of God? And how many of you, when you were hearing that law of God, were realizing, this is God's law over my life? And how many of you know and have seen what the church and what Christians have done with the law of God? There are so many places where it's hardly even read once a year, let alone within the whole life of the church. And we see it in the life of believers, particularly when it comes to that fourth commandment, don't we? It's the one law that we say, oh, we don't need that one anymore. So we have just picked and chosen a law of God that we said no longer is is uh, relevant in our life as a believer and as a church. 
and we cast it aside. And we forget the words of Jesus. What did He say in Matthew 5? I have not come to destroy the law. And what have we done with the law of God? We've destroyed it. Now Jesus said, I've come to fulfill it. And I might add, as, as He reveals through His Word, and I have come to see that it is fulfilled in you. And that anarchy of antinomianism, it comes in. I think it's, it's neatly summed up by the very last verse of the book of Judges. It's easy for you to find. If you go to the Old Testament, it's the 5th, 6th, 7th book of the Old Testament. There we are. And you go to the very last verse. Judges 21-25. This is the anarchy of antinomianism summed up. And this is summed up for God's people. This is Israel. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Isn't that a sad, a very discouraging testimony? For God's people. No king. They cast off the rule of God for the rule of self. Now I say that because what antinomianism does, which is, which is even worse than moralism, is it stands opposed to morals. At least abstract and authoritative Morals that are beyond my own pragmatic view. They're opposed to God's law and orderliness. And in, in that, they're standing against the grace and salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ. God's law, God's word holds many imperatives You shall not. You shall. Do this. Don't do that. Now we're not resting in our ability to to accomplish those things. We're resting in the salvation that Christ has given us. But these come and meet us in that indicative state of who we are to command our lives for God's glory. And James here is not concerned about practical Christian living. He's concerned with your progress in holiness. He's concerned, as verse 8 draws out, He's concerned that you have clean hands, that you have a purity of heart, that you have a faith that is real and living and is following in truth and righteousness of who Jesus Christ is. That's what he's concerned with. This sounds like a long introduction to some simple words, but I want to enforce this point. That he is concerned, as, as the psalmist said, as David said in Psalm 51, verse 6, God, you desire truth in the inward parts, and you will make me to know wisdom. And that's what James is doing here. And so he's speaking in light of the faith that we have. That's why these last several messages have all began in their title with faith and the jealousy of God. Faith and humility. And today, 
faith and purity of speech. How pure is your speech? And even more, as as we look at these two verses, how pure is your speech when you talk about fellow believers? Isn't this going to be a real challenge to our hearts to hear this? Because James says here, with the command of the Spirit of God, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Now, isn't that a very humbling but also fearful thing to consider in respect of the purity of our speech? In particular, as people of faith, as children of the living God, as believers in Christ. That imperative meets us. Do not speak evil of your brother. And and James very logically comes to this after he's talked about what we saw already about the jealousy that God has for His name and the jealousy that God has for us who bear His name. Again, for some of you who weren't here for that message, just stop and think. In whose name have you been baptized? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's name in all of its profoundness, glory, and majesty is now on you. And God says in Ezekiel 34, I am jealous for my name. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for every one of you who are in Christ. And you, you keep that in mind when you come to this. And he says there in verse 11, and, and, and you notice these words are directed to the church. Three times in that verse, who is he speaking about? The brethren. Your brother. Your brother. And that's inclusive, uh, ladies. Uh, that's a, a, an inclusive term that embraces all of you, men and women in Christ. Do not speak evil of those whom God has said, I am jealous for. Do you see the force of these words? And and why this is something that, again, following from the verses that preceded, that, that ought to humble us when we consider the purity of our uh, of our speech, particularly when it comes to evil speech. Do not speak evil of your brother. And, and I think very quickly that evil speech can be summed up with two words. Slander and gossip. That's, that's really what he's focused on here. Do not slander or gossip about your brethren. Because when you slander and gossip. You are exercising a pride, an envy, a coveting, where you use words to either put down another person, or you use those words to build yourself up at another person's expense, or you use those words to put yourself in judgment over another person. And that's what he gets. Do not speak evil 
of your brethren. Do not speak evil of those with whom you share the bonds of salvation and communion in Christ and with our God. That's the force of these words. What is slander? Slander is evil speech directed to a person that is intended to destroy the character and the worth of that person in the mind of another. That's why it falls under the umbrella of that commandment, you shall not commit murder. (laughs) It is with slander you are seeking to destroy someone's worth in the mind of another. And that's all that slander does. That's why it's evil. (laughs) But gossip, often translated in the Proverbs, tale-bearer, one who spreads tales. Gossip is also evil speech. And it's evil speech against another person that may or may not be true. We can gossip with truth that is still an act of evil. You might be thinking, oh, well, I'm speaking the truth in love. I often thought of that. Uh, I've, I've often thought when somebody comes up, well, dear brother, in love I want to say this to you. And I often thought, well, if, if this is an act of love, I, I think I'll recognize it most times if it's coming with gentleness and kindness and and, and the intention should come. But I don't think we necessarily need to frame our words with such with such a phrase if we're known to one another. We understand that someone's loving us. But gossip, it can be spreading something that is true in a very malicious way. That again, is even if it's spoken under the guise of concern, again, I'm I'm going to say this with gossip, spending a little more time here. I don't know how many times I've had somebody come up to me and say, Pastor, I thought you should know something about this person. And and I'm learning more and more to simply say, Stop. (laughs) Have you spoken to them? Have you directed this to them? And is this something that is personal between you and them? Because I don't need to hear everything that is going on in your relationships with one another. Other than say, you know, you could say something of this line. Look, I'm having a difficulty here. Can you give me guidance on how I should address this situation? Without speaking of people. But it's hard. Gossip is evil speech against someone that may or may not be true. But is deceitfully subversive. And is often spoken under the guise of concern, a need to know, or wanting justice. And James, when he talks about evil speech here, and warning that we ought not to speak evil of one another, he's not just looking back to the Proverbs, he's going all the way back to Leviticus all the way back to when God established Israel as His people. And in Leviticus 19, when He talked about the holiness that we are to exercise before this world, He said to them, Leviticus 19.16, You shall not go about as a talebearer or speaking evil among your people. You shall not. That's how old this imperative is. 
It's God's law over us. And when it comes to slander and gossip, Thomas Manton, a Puritan writer, said this. He said, Christians ought to be wary because your ears may be as guilty as your tongues. (laughs) Why is that? Because the issue of evil speech is something that is rooted in our corrupt hearts. It's part of that corruption that we always struggle with. Proverbs 18 said this, The words of a talebearer, the words of a slanderer and a gossiper, they are like tasty trifles. <laughs> Let's admit it. Evil speech is like tasty trifles. They go down into the inmost being. It's like that potato chip commercial. Some of you may not remember or know who Mark Messier is, but he got on there and was promoting this potato chip and his thing was, bet you can't eat just one. And some of you are like that with chocolates. You get a box of chocolates out on the table. How many of you can restrain yourself to just one? It's hard, isn't it? How much worse when it comes? And you think, why... Why is it that when somebody comes to us and says, did you hear about so-and-so and we don't go like this? Why, why is it that we... No, what? What was it? It's because of the corruption of our heart. That kind of evil speech is like a very tasty chocolate to this corrupt heart. And that's why we have this imperative. It's about Holiness. And it's about spiritual warfare. It's about understanding where does this kind of evil speech originate? It originates like all sin. It originates with the one who is the evil one. Who who spread the first tale and lie concerning God Himself. And thinks nothing to spread tales and lies about those created in His image. That's why in Scripture, it, it, it says, Proverbs twenty nineteen, a talebearer reveals secrets. Do not associate yourself with such a one because all they're doing is flattering you with their words about another person. What Paul said to widows in 1 Timothy 5, and this isn't, setting women up as the only ones who do this, but it was a problem in their day. Widows in the church who would go from house to house gossiping, being a busybody, saying things they ought not to say. Listen to what he says. For some have already turned aside after Satan. That's what he says about this. This is the work of the devil. It's not the work of the Spirit when somebody comes and begins to speak evil of another brother or sister within the family of God. Don't ever think that that's a work of the Spirit. It's the work of Satan. And we need to understand that. That's why we also read from Psalm 15. Remember how Psalm 15 began. It began just like Psalm 24, didn't it? Who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Don't we hear that from Psalm 24? 
Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His presence, in His holy tabernacle? Only David here doesn't follow up like he did in Psalm 24 with the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who hasn't lifted his soul up to an idol, who hasn't sworn deceitfully, who pursues the righteousness of God. What does he say here? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. And then verse 3, basically summed up, who does not speak evil of his brothers. This is one who can stand in God's presence. This is one who can wear a garment of integrity before God in the Lord Jesus Christ. I say this so that you can understand the importance of this imperative. That it's just not a mild manner thing. Okay, guard your tongue that you're not saying something that's wrong or you're not saying something that's nasty about your neighbor, your friend, your brothers or sisters in the Lord. This comes down to, are you following the way of Satan or are you one who can stand with integrity in the presence of God? He goes further here. He doesn't just say, do not speak evil of your brother. He goes on to relate it. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of what? Speaks evil of the law and judges the law. And then with verse 12, forgets that there's one lawgiver who's able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge one another? A little side note here. I think there's many people who aren't Christians. And you've encountered them. It seems uh, everybody knows Matthew 7 verse 1. (laughs) Judge not that you not be judged. (laughs) Do not judge another person. For with whatever judgment you exercise, it will be put upon you. A lot of unbelievers know that verse and often will exercise it when they're found in sin or when they're confronted with their sinfulness or wrongs that they have done. Who are you to judge? (laughs) I want to say that James, like Jesus, isn't telling us that we do not have that ability to judge We do. We're called to make judgments. We're called to be discerning. We're called to judge between one who is a wolf in sheep's clothing and one who is a preacher sent by God. We're called to judge between what is worldly and godly. We're called to judge between what is hypocrisy and what is truth. He's not telling us that we can't make judgments in that sense. But what he is saying here is when it comes to speaking evil, when it comes to slander and gossip, what you don't understand is what you are doing is you are speaking evil of the law of God and you are making ungodly judgments that will reflect upon yourself. James, like Jesus, is saying this, deal with the beam in your own eye before you try and fix a splinter in somebody else's. 
deal with the uh, visible and, and real sins that are in your own lives before you go out and spread rumors about somebody else that's doing what you're doing. <laughs> I think there is an analogy to this in Second Samuel with David and his sin. Remember David's sin with Bathsheba. And he went on several months living content that I have dealt with this sin. No one's going to find out. Uriah's dead. Bathsheba, while she was in mourning, Uriah had come home. Nobody other than me knows that he didn't uh, go into her. So this baby could really be seen as Uriah's. And I've killed him. So nobody knows what's going on. I've hidden it well. My sin is hidden. And you remember Nathan the prophet came to him and told him a story about a man who had stolen somebody else's lamb, the only lamb that family had, and, and, and used it to serve his friends who had come over. Remember what David's response was to that story. Immediately, he was aroused in anger by the injustice, and he became a judge over that man's sin. And he said this, As the Lord lives, that man who did this deserves to die. And Nathan says those wondrous words, David, you are the man. Listen to what comes after that. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in His sight? You have spoken evil of God's law in casting your judgment on another person by the evil that you heard. And how often have we done that? That tasty trifle of slander or gossip comes and immediately we jump on the bandwagon. He's wrong. He should pay. (laughs) Isn't that what social media justice does? And does it without impunity. It's incredible how often social justice media has destroyed people's lives. I find it reprehensible that all someone has to do is post something that was said or something that was shown in times past and immediately someone's business is boycotted, their livelihood is gone, and there is no What? No mercy. None. My friends, that's what James is saying here. When you speak evil, it brings you to that place where you are so prepared to exercise a judgment on someone else without mercy. Again, do you see how evil it is? And why James comes and after he's talked there about humbling yourself in the sight of the Lord, looking to God to lift you up. After he said all that, he immediately says, do not speak evil of your brothers. Because you will act without mercy even to those who God has shown mercy unto. Slanderers and gossipers have this in common. They appoint themselves to a place of judge and jury over the one whom they speak evil of. 
and that commits further evils. They violate the royal law of love to their neighbors. They lose humility and love for mercy and doing righteousness is set aside. They set themselves above God's law. They contemptuously pick and choose the laws that that God has set over them. And they put themselves, as verse 12 says, they put themselves in place of God. And in that light, the fear of the Lord is lost upon the slander and the gossiper. You see why God hates this? (laughs) Because it comes back as an affront to who He is. Evil speech moves us away from the goodness that the Lord requires of us. My friends, that's why it comes and meets us in this text. Now, what is the remedy for evil speech? I'll bring it right back to the very beginning. The remedy against moralism is what? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The remedy against the anarchy of antinomianism. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The remedy of evil speech is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the grace meaning that tender, loving kindness of a holy God to an unworthy sinner. That grace of God that comes down to wash us clean of our sins in the blood of Christ. To establish us as a people who are forgiven and accepted by God through the atonement of Christ and through the righteousness of Christ. It's that grace of God that justifies us That makes us right with God because of what Christ has done. We don't deserve it, but oh, it comes and meets us because of who God is. And that grace is ready to meet us. Whether we are a victim of evil speech or we are the offender. It's the grace of Jesus Christ that must meet us. And let me point this out in conclusion. And this is bringing us to this table so that we may share in communion with one another in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you have been a victim of slander and gossip? I dare to say most of us will put up our hand to that that question far quicker than we would to the next one. How many of you have been an offender? We do think more highly of ourselves in that way. But if you've been a victim, how many of you, being a victim of slander, have distanced yourself and disfellowshipped yourself from the person who did it? It's hard, isn't it? Forgiveness is often lacking. And oh, we need the grace of God. Some of us don't realize we've been the victim. But if you are the victim, understand this. That your Lord and Savior, He bore slander unto death on the cross. That's good news for you. He bore the vengeful evil and malice that was laid upon Him by so many people. He bore it to the grave and He arose in glorious exaltation to put such unto death for us. 
So that we do not cling to that slander and allow it to govern our thoughts and our minds concerning those who leveled it against us. So that we can come in the forgiveness and mercy of God that has met us in Christ to extend it with a willing heart. So that we don't come under the bondage of victimization. And allow that to rule us. We see so much of that today, don't we? I'm a victim. I'm a victim. Well, you know what? We're all victims. But we're also offenders. (laughs) we, We get it so wrong, don't we? Oh, what grace. My friends, if you're a victim, Christ is your refuge. A very present help who comes and who says to us, your sufferings in this life, they're momentary. They're light. I have a glory for you that far exceeds whatever slander, whatever gossip you have endured. And I will give you the grace you need to forgive. And you will know the joy. You will know the joy that the Father experiences when we come to Him and we confess our sins that have offended Him and we come in the name of Jesus and say, Father, forgive me. Do you know that the, what Scripture says? He delights in mercy. And you will know the joy, the delight of mercy as the grace of Jesus Christ works in you. And if you are the offender, then know this, that He has an atonement and a righteousness that is sufficient to wash you clean of these sins. He has given His Spirit of truth and gentleness to nurture the holy fruit of kindness and gentleness in your heart. He is the holiness to which you are being conformed to. He is your shield in these things. And He can and He will deal with this corruption of your heart if you will humble yourself yourself under His hands. Or as James says there, if you will humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He will lift you up. He will remedy this evil that has taken hold of you. Draw near to God. Submit to Him. Lament, mourn, and weep your sin. And lay this before God and He will come and He will cleanse you and He will revive you in being able to be one who can speak truth in love. That's the work He does. That's the work of His grace. You see, these things can be changed in us if we are resting in Christ, if we are trusting in Him, if we have faith in Him. Purity of speech will be our lot. Let's pray.